for singing. We're continuing our study this morning through the book of 1 Peter. We've started this study the very first Sunday of this year, and incidentally, uh, we don't really have an end date in mind yet, uh, but I know that we'll be going in, if, if the Lord tarries, we'll be here into next year for sure. You remember, I hope, that as we've been reading this letter, and as we've been studying this letter, that it's very clear that Peter is writing and he's concerned with the impact that believers have on an unbelieving world. He's very concerned with the impact that believers have on an unbelieving world. And that really does seem to be the focus of the letter. And, and what many have identified as the theme verses of the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter is reminding us that we have been called out of darkness. And if you just stop there for a moment, you would really think that is really magnificent, isn't it? You and I have been called out of darkness. Darkness, what is that? Darkness is that which is away from or apart from God. We have been called out of darkness and thus into this relationship with God. And He has given us this great purpose. And it's the purpose of publishing or proclaiming something of the superiority of the one true God. He says in verse 9 of chapter 2 that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. That word excellencies is used to describe or to, to, to talk about the eminence, the, the, the preeminence, the glory, the supremacy, the superiority of God. In other words, if you have, been, if you have genuinely come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been called out of darkness into this relationship with the one true God and He, we, we kind of said it this way, He is making you and I into a billboard of sorts on which He can display something of His excellence, something of His greatness, something of His grandness to the entire world of unbelieving men and women. Now, I did this a couple of weeks now in a row. Basically, the rest of the letter is organized around that theme. And he says there are four ways that you proclaim His excellence. Now, this is not the sermon for today. This isn't the outline for today. It's just showing you the outline for the rest of the book. How is it that you and I proclaim the excellencies of God? We do it, one, through our sanctification. We've talked about that. Uh, we saw that in passages like chapter 1, verses 13 and 16. Chapter 2, verses, verse uh, 3 and verses 11 and 12. We do it through our sanctification. Secondly, we do it through our submission. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We do it through our submission. Then we'll find out as we go on, we do it through our suffering. And then lastly, Christians proclaim the excellencies of our God through our serving. So those are the four ways that that happens. Now, last couple of weeks, as I said, we've already talked about our sanctification. Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this issue of submission, the submission of a Christian, Christian submission. Now, I realize that that word can make some of you uh, cringe, sort of. It brings a whole lot of thoughts, different thoughts into our minds. And, and I want us to understand this word submission uh, as being in the place and being the kind of person that God has intended for you to be. To be. 
As I said, some of you, you hear that word submission and you begin to cringe because sometimes some people have taken that word and they've turned it into a rod and just tried to try to control you. So you have this culture, this, this way of thinking in your mind. When you hear that word submission, it kind of grates against you. But what I want us to do is I want you to know, first of all, I know that and God knows that, but let's look together at God's good plan, not at what someone has perverted that to be. We've seen this in relation to human governing, the human governing authorities. We've seen this in relation to the, 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 the slave master realm. Basically, is one point. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not stop doing right. You continue to do good. You continue to live righteously, even if people mock you for it. Even if people turn against you for it, suppose you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that doesn't give you the right to turn to governing authorities and say, you know what, I have a higher authority, I'm no longer going to listen to you, I'm no longer going to obey you. Or for you to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant, as a slave, slave, as, a, as an employee, you can't look at your boss who might be a, or your master who might be a pagan and say, you know what, you're a pagan, I'm no longer going to listen to you, let me go do my own thing. That's not the point. He says, just keep doing good, keep doing right. That's how he finishes out chapter 2. But in chapter 3, where our text is today, Peter's beginning to discuss how the believer might bring glory to God in the midst of a pagan world with special emphasis upon the home. Today we're going to talk about the subject, when the gospel goes home. We're going to do this in two parts. First part this week, verses 1 through 6. Second part next week, verse 7. He turns his attention to the wife in verses 1 through 6 and then to the husband in verse 7. Now some of you are going to say, all right, what gives? Why do wives get six verses and the men only get one? Well, the, real, the, the, the reality is there was so many, so much wrong thinking in that day, specifically regarding the personhood of women, that Peter had to, to correct that. For instance, uh, at that time when it was written in that culture, women were little more than an afterthought. Women were considered basically a possession in the Jewish culture, in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture. Basically, women had no rights whatsoever. In the Roman culture, one commentator said, the whole attitude of ancient civilization was that no woman could dare take any decision for herself. And so what Peter is actually doing is he's not trying to really, you know, lay the law down for the women. He's actually confronting the culture. And he's teaching us something. These women would need to know who they were and how they were to live as new believers in Jesus Christ. To put it simply, these women needed to know that they were actually precious in the sight of God because there was nothing in that culture to indicate that. So with that in mind, with realizing what that culture was like, what do you think it would have been like for a woman to become a Christian in that day while her husband remained in paganism? Suppose a woman came to faith in Christ while her husband remained an unbeliever. Side note, it's not okay to marry an unbeliever. Right? This is not, this is not okay. But what we have here, that, that's not permitted. But what is happening here is a husband and wife 
in their sin, in their paganism, remaining, in, and all of a sudden the woman hears the gospel, she believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, she comes to faith in Christ after she was married. The passage is now, uh, what do you have to understand about this before I go any further? 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is not saying everything there is to be or even should be said about marriage. You have to keep that in mind. This passage is not saying everything that could be said about marriage in every instance. It's not an encyclopedia for everything about marriage. It's actually a very pointed and specific passage regarding a woman who becomes a Christian while her husband remains in paganism. Can you imagine what that must have been like for her? How would she handle that? What would she do when her husband begins to speak against her faith in Christ? What happens when he begins to deride the Lord Jesus Christ? How does she handle that? Does she fire back? Does she go on a verbal tirade? Does she start to harangue him? Or should she just go out and forget that relationship and go out and find a decent Christian husband? Is that what she should do? Peter speaks to the situation in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's read. Likewise. Now stop right there. You can see we're going to get far today. Likewise. That refers us back to verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2. And I think he is specifically referring back to the way that the Lord Jesus Christ responded to reviling. Specifically, he's referring to how Jesus did not sin with his mouth. Wives, Peter says, in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ did not sin when he encountered unbelievers, you should not sin. Do not resort. He's saying, you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, good. Don't resort to reviling and complaining or criticizing or even being contentious. All right? Paul says essentially the same thing in 1 Peter or 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says if if a, if a husband or an unbelieving wife is willing to live with a believing spouse, then stay with him, stay with her uh, and be a silent preacher of righteousness. But but if they want to go, you're not bound. And Look, in a room this size this morning, you've got people who have all kinds of different experiences in their lives, and we need to be sensitive towards that. Um, sensitive to that. Uh, some of you feel the pain of broken relationships. And, 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 and it's, it's one of the good things about gathering together as a church. That's why listening to a podcast is not church. All right? The experience of the body together, hearing the word together, putting ourselves under the word together and recognizing we don't come in like this, right? We come together as a, as a group of people, as a community of believers. And what, I, what, what we're hearing together, what we're hearing, we're hearing together, not just as individuals. The reality is, for those of you who have experienced broken relationships, the biblical instruction is not to become embittered and to somehow use the actions of the unbelieving spouse as a reason to turn from your trust in the Lord. Now, I want to remind you of that. And, and I think um, we should be willing, as I said, to hear this together. We ought to be willing to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. We ought to hear this together as a church family and seek to uphold one another. All right, let me go back to the text now. Likewise, 
wives. Stop right there. No, I'm just kidding. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning, adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There's a phrase in verse 4 that I think just captures the essence of this text and and really the big idea. I, I think it communicates the driving idea for this text. In this context, Peter is speaking of women who are to be viewed as and understand that that, that they themselves are precious in the sight of God. That's the big idea. The one big idea in our text is this. A Christian wife in the home is precious and pleasing to God. Praise the Lord. This has caused me to ask, what are the marks, what are the characteristics, what are the features of this, of this precious woman in the sight of God? Sisters in Christ, you need to understand this morning you are a precious part of God's plan for proclaiming His excellence. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I want to discover together with you four marks or four characteristics or four attributes of a woman who is precious in the sight of God. One, we'll see her concern. I'm sorry, her conduct. Her conduct. Verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4, we'll see her concern. 1 and 2, her conduct. Verses 3 and 4, her concern. 4 and 5, her character. And then 5 and 6, her confidence. Four marks, four features of a woman who is precious in the sight of God. One, her conduct, verses one and two. How does she conduct herself? The first most obvious thing that stands out is this this, uh, focus here. Be subject to your own husbands. Her conduct, what what do we first see? We'd say, well, she is submissive. She is submissive. Peter's calling for these believing wives, remember, believing wives, unbelieving husbands, calling them to be subject to your own husbands. Now, this is not a command of women in general to be subordinate to men in general. This is a command a function, a referring to the function within the home. Suppose that a wife comes to faith in Christ, that doesn't immediately mean that she's supposed to disregard her marriage relationships. In other words, what he's saying is the Christian wife is to remain under the authority even of an unbelieving husband because Paul would tell us later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 that it could be through that relationship that God might bring that, that husband, that unbelieving husband into a right relationship with God. 
In other words, God is the one, just as God is the one who ordained civil government, just as God is the one who ordained the authority of, of work, God is the one who ordained the human family, and He is the one who has assigned a specific role to the husband and, and who is responsible for leadership in the home. Just because that, that man is an unbeliever doesn't mean God no longer holds him responsible to be the believer. It just heightens his judgment. And so he says, you are to continue to follow his leadership, of course, insofar as the scriptures are not being violated. Let me say this. Again, text doesn't say everything that could possibly be said about marriage, and so it's going to be necessary from time to time that we say a few things. Uh, If he calls you to sin against God, you are not bound to that. That's clear. It's to say nothing of abusive relationships. Um, God has created a venue for dealing with abusive relationships. That, That is criminal activity and that is to be treated as such. And that's the purpose of human government. Human government, physical abuse, sexual abuse is criminal activity which is to be reported to and treated by that which has been instituted by God to deal with those kinds of things. That's the purpose of government. They bear the sword not in vain. Criminal activity gets referred to the governing authorities. And I know some of you have been in situations like this and even right now are in those situations. And you have to entrust yourself to the wisdom and kindness of the Lord. By and large, in general, Peter is saying the godly woman conducts herself by submitting to her husband, even if he's an unbeliever. In other words, she, she doesn't revile him. She doesn't, she doesn't criticize him. She doesn't nag him. She just submits as she entrusts herself to the Lord and, and entrusts the situation to the Lord. Well, the question is, how do you do that? Well, just keep reading. Not only does he point out her conduct as being uh, a submissive, but he, he shows her conduct in terms of her sanctification. She is sanctified. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is talking about holy conduct. The unbelieving husband is to be able to observe. You see what he says here? Verse 2. When they see, that little word see is a word that means to observe as in to investigate. The unbelieving husband is to be able to observe a life of holiness and purity. That's the kind of conduct that he is supposed to see. He's not to see a woman who is conniving and complaining and criticizing. She is seeking purity. She is pure. She is clean. She is chaste. And again, this is not Peter sort of holding his stick over the women and giving them this command. He's he's affirming to them, you are a chaste, you are a pure vessel, precious in the sight of God. She's not out there trying to make things happen on her own. She's pure in, in her reverence for God as she approaches the marriage relationship. She is respectful, verse 2. When they see your respectful conduct, and I pointed this out earlier at the end of chapter 2, that word respectful is the word that is most often used in terms of the human relationship or the human view of God. 
We're called to fear God in chapter 2, verse 17. We're called to fear Him, to be mindful of God in chapter 2, verse 19. We are called to fear God. This respectful, I think, could be better translated the way that they fear or their reverence of God. Your unbelieving husband is to see something about, to observe something about God in your life, to say, this God, the God that my wife serves, is a holy, righteous God. She reverences Him. Not reverencing her husband. You're not called to reverence Him, your husband. You're called to reverence God. And that's what the unbelieving husband observes. He contemplates the way in which his wife honors God, fears God, and that becomes her testimony. Let me just say something this about this. They say, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. You, you heard, you know, the saying, um, preach Christ and if necessary, use words. Eh. Okay, I might understand what you mean, but, but if by that you mean that it's not necessary, that, that, that the hearing of the gospel is not necessary for someone to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then you've gotten it all wrong. It is absolutely necessary for someone to hear the actual message of the gospel. You're not going to get saved just because you had an oogly-googly feeling, just because you felt the butterflies, or because you got some kind of dream or vision. No, you must actually hear the message, the propositional truth of the gospel in order to be saved. What he's saying is that the conduct of this believing wife might be the very thing that opens the door, what? For the Word. It might be the very thing that opens the door for the Word. Now remember the whole purpose of this is so that on the day of visitation, they, the unbelievers, may glorify God. And we said that the day of visitation can be referring to to one of two things. Either the day of visitation when they come, when God visits them to save them, like Megan said, the Holy Spirit was making His way into her heart, When God comes to save them, that day of visitation, and when He comes to save them, that will be the very thing that God uses to to open the door for the Word. Or the day of visitation could be referring to the day when God comes to judge them. When God comes to judge them. If so, on that day, His mouth will be shut before the Lord. He will be forced to reckon with your godly life and your godly testimony, and his mouth will be shut before the Lord. No excuses. And so you should look at your husband like that. You should see, you should recognize that the fact that your husband is going to give a very serious account before the Lord. And that's to, that's to affect your, your sanctification. This is your conduct. You are submissive insofar as the word is not violated. And you are to be sanctified. Second, we see the precious woman's concern. A woman who is precious in the sight of God, he points out her concern. One man said this, Peter's caution against a woman investing her wealth and worth in her physical appearance to the detriment of her spirit reflects the same principle Jesus taught on several occasions. That is, believers cannot afford to invest their resources and things on earth to the neglect of eternal issues. Notice what he says. Verse 3, do not let your adorning, adorning is, adorn is what you do when you, you, you put uh, ornaments on a Christmas tree, you adorn it, you place it just so. You're adorning, don't, 
Don't let your adorning be merely external. I want you to see what is the concern of this woman who is precious in the sight of God. What is she concerned with? She is concerned with inner beauty. She's not concerned with simply looking nice. Now that's something, we're not saying that's bad. Alright? It's good to look nice. It's not bad. I got my tie out this morning and I told my wife, I said, you realize I've had this tie since college? And she said, and evidently the pants too. (laughs) So I said, that's it. We're going to Walmart next week. We're going to really, not bad to, to look nice, right? But the holy woman is primarily concerned. I can't believe she said that. The holy woman is primarily concerned about what she looks like on the inside, her heart before God. She's concerned with how she takes care of herself spiritually. And I want to share with you, when you care for the inside, that has the effect on the outside. The more beautiful you are on the inside, the more beautiful you will be on the outside. there, There are young ladies today who are just trying to get the attention of a man by how they dress, by, by how they conduct themselves before him. And that's a fading beauty. It's not going to last. The wrinkles are going to come. The attraction is going to fade. But this is an inner beauty that is her concern. What is this inner beauty? Well, this inner beauty leads us to not only considering the inner beauty, but an incorruptible beauty. Notice what he says. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and putting on a gold jewelry or the clothing you wear But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, the incorruptible beauty of what? Of a gentle and quiet spirit. What is the incorruptible beauty? It is gentleness. It is quietness. Gentleness is meekness. Meekness toward God. Meekness toward God. That's the disposition of spirit in which we accept His dealings with us as good, even though we don't understand it. The the meek person is not disputing against God or resisting God. In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend them against injustice. So meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, that He will use them to purify His elect and to bring the non-elect into judgment. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness, selfish ambition, self-interest. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. And then, by the way, Galatians 5.23, this is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. Gentleness and then quietness. By the way, to be quiet, or what what does he say here? Um, Yeah, the quiet spirit. It's not mute not being mute. It's a reference to a woman who is peaceable and peaceful. In other words, because you have the peace with God, you can have the peace of God that quietly rests in Him. The quiet, the quiet spirited woman is not a complainer and she's not a boaster. She's not one who's argumentative or nagging. She just quietly rests in God. So her concern is inner beauty, incorruptible beauty, and then... Just point this out, an invaluable beauty. What do I mean? He just points this out. Again, that phrase, which in God's sight is very precious. It is priceless. It's something that God honors. 
The word precious communicates something which is expensive, costly, or of great value. This is something that God values. What God values is not earrings. What God values is not jewels and clothing. What God values is the inner person. And as a godly woman, your greatest concern is to cultivate a beauty that is an eternally invaluable beauty, a priceless beauty. Sisters in Christ, please listen to me today. You have an audience of one. That's it. Your concern is to be a, uh, is a beauty that cannot be measured by worldly measures, but rather is something that is precious to God, costly to God. Why is it costly to Him? Because the only way it's possible is through the sacrifice and work of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he sees this kind of, of, of attitude, and when he sees this kind of concern in your heart, he recognizes that that is something that came as a direct work, as a direct result of his son. And that's why it pleases him. That's why it's so precious to him. You remind him of Jesus. And he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. How do you cultivate that kind of beauty? Well, just keep reading. Because he goes from talking about her conduct and her concern to talking about her character in verses 4 and 5. In fact, we'll just look at verse 5. For this is how the, look at this, holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Holy women. That's the character of the woman who is precious in the sight of God. She's holy. That's her personality. That's her nature. Holy. She's a holy woman. I want you to pay close attention to this so that you you, you hear it right. Don't miss this. Two specific aspects of holiness. Positional holiness. What we might call positional holiness. As I said, to be holy means two things. It refers, first of all, to her position. In other words, it is a reference to her standing before God. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, those who have come to trust Christ can stand before God. Even though they are sinners, they stand before God as justified. They stand before God as positionally holy. In other words, sisters in Christ, you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You stand before God and He looks at you just like He looks at His own Son. He looks at you just like He looks at His own Son. You are holy in His sight. That means you're blameless. And just let the truth of the gospel wash over your heart and soul. Have you understood and embraced the gospel? Have you embraced the good news of Jesus Christ? If so, you are already holy. Despite your faults and failures that you know well, You're already holy. He claims you as His own. But not only does it refer to positional holiness, it refers to a practical holiness. Her her character is one in which she is practically pursuing the, the living out of holiness, the becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy women who have said, goodbye to immorality. Holy women who have said goodbye to selfishness. Just like 
Sarah, who Peter brings up as an illustration. She had lived in immorality. She had lived in paganism. She was like her husband Abram, a moon worshiper. But she came to the point of submitting herself to the Lord God and worshiping Him. She changed, increasingly changed the way that she was living. And that's the the, the character of this woman who is precious in the sight of God. A Christian woman in the home is precious to God. Let me show you lastly her confidence. This is how verse 5, holy women who, notice this, hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening her confidence. What is her confidence? She hoped in God. One last characteristic of this woman who is precious in the sight of God. And that is her confidence. That is who she is trusting. What she's relying on. She's relying on. She hoped in God. What does it mean to have confidence in God? There are two specific aspects that I think are referred to in this text. One would be to rely on, trust in, wait on God's promises. It's interesting that of all the women in the Old Testament that Peter could have chosen as an illustration, he chose Sarah. She's not necessarily the epitome of what we might think about when we think of a godly woman. She had lots of things against her. But one thing she had going for her was her trust in God, her increasing confidence in God, her trust in His promises. Now, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, we've been working on this at home. And it's not worked out very well. (laughs) As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. What what are we to make of this? Calling Abraham Lord is a way of saying that she was willing to submit herself to her God-given calling. That's what she did. She trusted the Lord and the Lord alone. The Lord, capital L, Lord. It means that Sarah was okay with God's promise. God had made a promise to Abraham. God had made a promise to him. And she, even though she wrestled, she made a promise. And listen, what was that promise? What was her confidence? Ladies, I need to tell you this. Her confidence was not that, oh, you know what? I'm going to have this great life. I'm going to live my best life now. And everything is going to be so wonderful. And it's going to be, that was not her confidence. Her confidence wasn't even that she would have this wonderful family life. Her confidence was that God would send a redeemer. That God would send a seed. And that seed, that son, that greater son, greater even than Abraham, greater even than Isaac, greater than Jacob, that seed, that son would be, listen, her redemption, her Savior. And that's what's precious to God. When a woman who not having it all together in the midst of difficulty and heartache and heartbreak 
looks to Him and trusts His promise. His promise to save everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. His promise to never leave you, sister. To never forsake you. That's her confidence. Confidence in God's promise. And then secondly, confidence in God's plan. She was willing to be a vessel through which God fulfilled His word and submitted herself to that plan as Abraham's wife. She was not trusting Abraham primarily. She was trusting the Lord. And that's precious in the sight of God. She was trusting herself to the plan of God. God, listen, Sarah didn't have it all worked out in her mind. Oh, you know, one plus one is two, carry the one, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't that. She didn't have it all worked out in her mind, but she said, Lord, here I am. And ladies, those of you particularly with unbelieving husbands, some of you in the midst of a broken relationship, some of you right now uh, not in a relationship, maybe you are, and, and you have a believing husband, but let me tell you this, you don't have everything, none of us, you don't have everything worked out in your mind, but what you can do in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of whatever it is, you can say, Lord, I offer myself up to you. Here I am. Here I am. We have to come back to consider the context in which we find this text. You have been called out of darkness. You've been called out of not only being rightly, uh, called out of not only being not rightly related to God, but you've been called out of darkness to a place of being rightly related to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not for you that He has done that. It's for Him. It's in order to proclaim something of His transcending excellence. You you don't need to go to seminary for that, and you don't need to join a convent for that. Take your everyday relationships, even your marriage, even if you're married to an unbeliever, Quietly, reverently, humbly, modestly live for the Lord and trust yourself to Him. Even if you're experiencing a broken marriage right now. Some of you are dealing with that. You should know that we're hurting with you, praying with you, longing to serve you. But listen, in the midst of your pain, do not take your eyes off of Christ. Don't use this as a reason to turn from Christ. I think I told you some time ago about a little boy who was standing before a local congregation. Their Sunday school class was reciting the I am statements of Jesus. And when it came to his turn, he was supposed to recite John 8, 12, in which Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But when he stood up in front of the congregation, he kind of went blank. He, he just couldn't remember what his line was. And his mom was sitting down there in the front row and she's willing him to, you know, And she's mouthing. And he looks at her and he says, my mom is the light of the world. (laughs) And that's exactly the point of this text. Sisters, you are the light of the world. Precious in the sight of God. Useful 
for Him and for His service. What's, what's this all about? What's the big idea? Well, the big idea comes in 1 Peter 3, 15. Honor, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. That's what you do. That's what your life does. Your life, you, you don't try to impress people with the latest fads, right? There's nothing of any, any eternal value there. You, you don't try to impress people with your, your appearance. Always trying to change you, how you look on the outside. That's not, that's not it. That's not it at all. If that's the aim and direction of your life, your life is about clothing and jewelry and appearance, keeping up with the Joneses, impressing others with the way, there, there's nothing eternally valuable there. There's nothing lasting there. Your life is meant to communicate something about your hope, and your hope is not in how you look. Your hope is laid up in Christ. Somebody's supposed to, your husband, your unbelieving husband is supposed to be able to look at you, observe and say, what's up with that? Why will you live like this? And there's the opportunity to speak to him and to speak to the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you today in the name of Christ. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the text you've given us. And we pray that you would impress the importance of it not on, on all of us, not only on the sisters amongst us this morning, how thankful we are for them, but that you would impress the importance of this text on all of us, that we can live a life that would be directed to our hope in Christ. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. We love you and give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. And together all God's people said, amen. Would you stand together? And-